Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, or in this week's case, where someone deeply involved in journalism uh, talks about journalism. It's coming to you from the 2SER in Sydney, on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia, on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey. I'm the coordinator of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology, Sydney, and my producer today is the esteemed Anthony Dockrell. Well, it's now official. Fairfax, as we have known it, is now just a division in Nine Entertainment, just a profit center, if you like, on the profit and loss statement. Hopefully it's a profit center. Uh, Depending on how romantic you are, this is either a sad end to one of our country's great institutions, or it is just more or less business as usual. Your morning paper will be there beside your coffee tomorrow morning, so what is there to complain about? Last week, we heard from the departing CEO of Fairfax, Greg Highwood, and when I asked him about the end of the Fairfax name, he replied that, in essence, it would mean no change for neither the public or the journalists, that you don't need the name Fairfax to guarantee high-quality journalism, that it's all about the mastheads. This week, I wanted a different perspective, and what better way to get it than to ask a Fairfax? Not just a Fairfax, someone who wrote his very own and very important page in the history books of the company and the Australian media landscape in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Warwick Fairfax, on the line from Annapolis, Maryland. Welcome to the Fourth Estate. Thanks, Peter. How's the weather, by the way? Uh, Not bad. It's sort of a little cold here, but... um Maryland is a fairly temperate in climate, so if you go to the northeast or the Midwest, it's far colder. So for an Australian, uh, the Washington, D.C. area is, um, you know, not too bad. Not too bad, yeah. Yeah. So, look, I I will say in advance, please excuse me if I accidentally call you Young Warwick. (laughs) As I jokingly say to people, uh, when I'm 95, if I get that far, I'll still probably be young, Warwick. So (laughs) the the older you get, the better it gets. Yeah, okay. That's true. I'd love people to call me Young Peter if they wouldn't mind. Um, So what do you think of what Greg Highwood said? um, And more broadly, at the end, in public at least, of the name Fairfax, what emotion did it stir in you? Well, I mean... uh, I guess different emotions. It's obviously sad having been in my family for over 150 years. I mean, I get what Greg Highwood is saying, that ultimately the quality resides in the mastheads, and in particular the quality of the journalists. That's really, you know, and the editors, that's what it's all about. So I think that's a true statement. Um, I mean, I, I can't pretend to be objective, but I think for over 150 years, the name Fairfax has a certain um, connotation of quality and Fairfax family, uh, rightly or wrongly, were seen to, you know, obviously rightly, I think, uh, were seen to be supporters of that. So might there be some that might say, well, without the family, which obviously hasn't been um, connected to it in a number of decades, and without the Fairfax name, what does that mean for the quality? I mean, I certainly understand the question. Um, I guess we'll have to see what Nine does. Uh, But if they're sensible, I think as Greg Highwood said, they will realize the value in the properties uh, depends on the quality of the newspapers, which depends on the quality of the editors and journalists. So mm-hmm. in theory, it can go on. But um, for some uh, who may be a bit more uh, sentimental, romantic, or, or 
or otherwise the name it is sad that the fairfax name goes but i I get the reality of business do you think it's better that it's gone into um another uh, media company or media slash entertainment company i suppose than say private equity um probably uh, i mean if you go to um private equity or venture capital uh it's a different mindset. It's it, it's tough for newspapers to make money in this day and age. I think of um, the Washington Post and uh, and Jeff Bezos having acquired it, which I think a lot of people, including the Washington Post, are probably fairly happy about it because he's not buying it from a financial perspective. He doesn't want it to lose that much money, but he's you know got billions of dollars, so he sees it. I think as a public service, really. So he's mm-hmm. not looking. Uh, for short-term profits, he's looking to preserve the value. So you, you kind of need that sort of mindset, I think. Um, it, it's just if you're looking for 20% or 30% returns every year, it's just it's tough in the, in the competitive world we live in for newspapers. So yeah, yeah. I think that's the mindset you kind of need to have. Of course, back in the day, or not so, yeah, but for a long time, the Fairfax family managed to combine, in a sense, the two. There was a a clear sense of public good, public service that came from the Fairfax family, and also, uh, fortunately, some very large profits. And those days are really gone, aren't they? Yes. I mean, I think as Greg Highwood and others have said, I think back in the 80s, they used to call it the Rivers of Gold, the uh, classifieds, um, which, uh, I mean, far and away, the bulk of the revenue came from there, bit in display and a uh, smaller bit in circulation, but that enabled um, both profitability and uh, correspondence all over the globe, and you know, robust um, journalistic, uh, you know, a, a whole lot of journalists. So that, um, yeah, it's it's a different world with uh, with digital, and that's really uh, it's changed the economic equation. It's made it tough for Fairfax Media as well as quality papers around the globe. It's, sadly, it's not just unique to you know, the Sydney Morning Herald of the age. Sadly not, yes. Just for the benefit of the listeners, I just would say, you know, in case people don't know the story, uh, the Fairfaxes, the Fairfax family um, first came to this country in the 1840s and have had a long and deep, a deeper and longer association with journalism and news media in this country than, say, the Salzburger family uh, in the U.S. who have controlled, obviously, the New York Times. Just for the sake of the listeners, Warwick, how did you how do you fit into the family tree? The original John Fairfax was your great great grandfather. Is that right? Yeah, something like that. I'm the fifth generation. Uh, he came out in the late 1830s uh, to Australia and um, actually bought the Sydney Morning Herald in 1841. It's an interesting story that I don't know too many people realize of why he came here. Uh, he was publishing. A small paper in Warwickshire, England, hence, I guess, my name and my dad's name, Mm. the Leamington Spa. And um, he wrote an article about a local lawyer, and the lawyer sued him. The court ruled in John Fairfax's favor and said it wasn't libelous, it was indeed true. And then this particular fellow sued him again. And back in those days, it wasn't like if you... um, win that the lo- that the loser pays the core costs. So even though he won both times, he was bankrupted by this, uh, one would argue, unscrupulous lawyer. So faced with that episode, I think he was a little fed up with uh, perhaps life in England. I don't know that we know the full story, but he decided he would move to a new country where uh, you know, he could make it a new start. And 
uh, create the newspaper of his dreams, if you will. So uh, that's what brought him with his young family to Australia. So it's um, yeah, it's it's quite a legacy. And one of the other things maybe people don't know, but I think is really helped uh, found the ethos of Fairfax Media and the Sydney Morning Herald is in the original masthead, even before he bought it, there was this motto which said, um, may Whigs call me Tory and Tory call me Whigs, mm. which, as you know, basically in the in the 1800s sense was saying, may liberals call me conservative and conservative call me liberal, yeah. wanting to be objective and fair. So that ethos was there as he found it, and then he and subsequent generations sought to perpetuate that kind of philosophy. So John Fairfax, the original John Fairfax and subsequent Fairfaxes did bring a sort of um, well, he was a very Christian man, as indeed you are, mm-hmm. uh, and he did bring a sort of sense of Christian responsibility to journalism. Is that how was that manifest? He did. I mean, he had this philosophy that while his faith was very strong, he was the equivalent of an elder in his local church. Actually, the church is still there, the Congregational Church in Pitt Street in Sydney, mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, it was more a way of running the paper. It wasn't so much that you would, you know, have Christian editorials, what have you. It was more just a sense of uh, values that informed um, how we would run the paper, making sure it was uh, it was fair and um, uh, treating people well, uh, cool. which he which he did. Um, so when he uh, you read his um, biography when he died, the journalists and compositors, what, what have you, just said what a kind employer he was and how they you know, just felt so fortunate to work this. It was more his values informed how he treated people and how he treated the news. That was mm. more, mm. I think, how it manifest, his do, faith manifested you, itself. Do you think the original John Fairfax would be able to make a go of journalism now? Well, that's a great question. It's funny, you know... Uh, John Fairfax was a businessman. Um, he had a partner, uh, Charles Kemp, who ran the journalism side, and together they collaborated on the editorial. Ironically, uh, a lot of us, at least I'll, well, I'll speak of my father, was more of a journalist at heart, really. Um, philosopher probably was a good way of looking at him. So, uh, I, you know, he was more of a business person than I say my father is. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that I'm necessarily a businessman in John Fairfax's mold. So in that sense, could he make a go of it? Um, you know, it's a hard question, but he mm. you know, was a very successful businessman, so who knows? Um, he certainly had a lot of common sense, so that's a great question. Hard mm. to answer, but oh, yeah, you never enough. know. Well, well, I guess that gives me brings me to another sort of, perhaps, uh, I guess the idea is a hypothetical question, but we all know what's happened in terms of the internet and, you know, there's been a lot of commentary about the, uh, Fairfax's, the Fairfax, the company rather than the family, mm-hmm. uh, failures to fully harness or, or place bets mm-hmm. really on the right horses in the digital age. And there's a, certainly a lot of commentary that, you know, that's sowed the seeds of where, where we got to this week in a sense. Do you think a family owned company would have been bolder? Uh, more bold in terms of, uh, or or more able to absorb the losses that might come from making, you know, poor bets in in on digital. I, I don't know. As I say, it's a hypothetical. Sure. No, it's a great question. Um, it's a hard one to answer because um, it can families be bolder. I think 
sometimes when you have an individual like a Jeff Bezos, you know, can they be bolder when, mm. but you know, he's a self-made man. Would a John Fairfax be bolder? Maybe, but uh, it's hard when you're third, fourth, fifth generation, and that's really got nothing to do with individuals, whether it's me, my father, my grandfather, relatives, you know, none of them founded the business. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's not always easy to be quite as, um, innovative or bold when you actually haven't physically founded it yourself. And that's, it's nothing against an individual. It's more just myself included. It, you know, it's not, it's not easy. Um, was there the commitment to journalism in the family? Absolutely. They would, I'm sure be included. Uh, none of us, uh, would have wanted to see large cuts and, journalism employees in general that's one side of it but the foresight to know which horses to bet on in that whole digital era i think but the time in the last several generations my father included we didn't really run the company day to day i think during my father's era as you would know rupert henderson was mm -hmm. probably the longtime general manager and you know by all accounts did a pretty good job from i don't know 40s or so on when yep. he was 40s, 50s, when he was general manager. So, you know, it, it's a tough question to... True, and it, it, is, a, it is a hypothetical. Answer. Yeah, no, fair so, enough. So, I, I mean, I don't think you can say, oh, absolutely, if the Fairfax family, me included, had been there, yes, you know, we would have handled the digital age better. Because when you look at most quality papers around the world, there aren't too many that got it right. Mm. It's sort of a, a rarity, so... Um, you know, why did the Washington Post feel like they had to sell mm. to Jeff Bezos, mm. you know, to preserve, you know, I don't know all the details, but you would think if they'd got it right, then maybe uh, the Graham family wouldn't have needed to do that. So, yeah, well, I think that's a fair comment. Know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, you talk about being bold. I mean, you yourself obviously made one of the boldest moves ever in Australian news media. So let's go back. 31 odd years uh and as i say i'm not a sentimentalist i'm mm -hmm. sure you're not but it's, sure. it's with there are many lessons here so we're going back to early um, 1987 um you're 26 you're fresh out of harvard business school and as you've written you're you're kind of in a way you're most likely on a pathway to being the company's largest shareholder mm -hmm. at some point probably the chairman or chief executive but that that you know that's a pathway of several years but you took the short route. You couldn't wait. Uh, you launched a takeover for Fairfax, which either through bad luck, you know, there was a recession or bad judgments mm -hmm. or the company debt burden blow up. And eventually, as we all know, in 1990, saw the reverse of what happened. The, the company fell out of, went into bankruptcy and fell out of Fairfax hands. You've written quite a lot about that. And I, I must say you're... Um, I will give a plug to your website at the end of the show because it's it's a very good read. But just why did you feel you had to do that back in 87? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I'm actually in the uh, sort of process of finalizing a book that sort of the lessons learned on that that'll get into more detail. Um, but at a high level, um, at the time, I felt like, um, you know, the stock market price of the company went, was going up in early 87. Mm -hmm. After my dad died, the market obviously believed the company was in play. So um, uh, I felt like uh, it was necessary to go first. Uh, there was friction in the family, probably going back decades. I think that's uh, reasonably well 
known. Uh, there were sort of a number of, of, of factors. Uh, you know, obviously, I was in my 20s at the time. In hindsight, was that really necessary? Uh, probably not. Um, would it have been better to respond after if there was a bid by Holmes Accord or whoever else? So, uh, you know, at the time, it seemed to make sense, but I was 26. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously, mm. I had my reasons, which I'll get into more in the book. But in hindsight, um, uh, it wasn't the wisest decision, uh, to say the least. When is the book coming out? Well, I'm hoping this year um, I'm you know, going to be talking to uh, publishers and um, you know, deciding in which direction to go. But uh, yeah, so that really the focus of the book is not so much what happened, although I get into it, it's more lessons learned um, in that kind of episode. Uh, so, yeah. On your website, you say uh, very clearly and boldly that the, fun, the foundation of your mistake was trying to be what others wanted you to be rather than who you were yourself, which, again, when you're 26, is not the easiest thing to know anyway. But you particularly right. talk about, you know, your father, Sir Warwick, and your mother, Lady mm -hmm. Mary. And yet you were born to run a media company. Wasn't that sort of intrinsic in your being? I mean, you it, felt it, the need it, to save it. You've, yeah, you saw it. It, 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 it was. Um, uh, and that's the hard thing with an inherited uh, family business. You feel like it's not just a business, it's a legacy. It's I look at it as a really um, a service to the country, if you will, uh, you know, just trying to preserve a quality paper. So it's it's hard not to want to go in there. Uh, you know, I love my parents, love my father dearly, and, you know, wouldn't want to do anything to uh, hurt his um, expectations. So yeah, there was a very strong sense of duty, and duty is a big deal for me. So... Yeah, I mean, uh, so my whole life I prepared to one day take a leading position. So went to Oxford like uh, my dad and some other relatives, worked on Wall Street and banking, went to Harvard Business School, mm. at least in the case of the latitude, not because I necessarily had a passion for finance. I just felt like with the, you know some journalists on my family like my dad, might be good to understand some finance as well. Mm. Uh, so it was all about preparing myself for the job at hand. But, you know, it, as I look back, I'm really more like my dad. My dad was a philosopher. I'm, I'm not really a philosopher, but I'm more of a reflective advisor. Um, I'm you, not like a take charge, Rupert Murdoch type of businessman. It's sure. just not my personality. So to be in that kind of position, uh, it's one thing to say, yes, it was my duty, but I didn't really have the uh, the makeup, the DNA to perform that. Um, oh. You know, again, somewhat similar to, to to my dad. It was just a um, it was a, a bad combination of uh, expectations from my parents that something needed to be done, and obviously, a bit of the fallout from tensions over the decades between different members of the family uh, and the sense that something needed to be done. It was just. Uh, you know, even if something did need to be done, I wasn't really the person. Mm. And whether whether something needed to be done, that's a matter of conjecture. And uh, there's clearly two sides to that story, which I obviously didn't realize at the time. Would you that's have wa would you wanted to have been a journalist? And on this you know, pathway, would, is that how you saw it? You know, I didn't at the time because I thought. Not what was not what was good, well, not what I should get involved in, but was more what was needed. But you know, my my dad was obviously uh, in his younger days, in the 30s and 40s, he wrote more, and um, 
uh, you know, had a number of things published in the paper, not so much by the time I came along. But yeah, I think I've inherited some of my dad's um, writing ability. And uh, so who's to say, you know, how that would really work? A member of the Fairfax family being a journalist. I don't know how that works in practice, mm. how the other journalists would perceive that. So, um, well, they'd be worried about your page one bylong count. <laughs> <They're, you know, laughs> there'd be a lot, of, as you know, it's a very competitive environment. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, it's, I, I, don't, I don't think I would have even thought that way because my attitude wasn't how, what can I contribute, is, is what was needed. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. It's a great question. Uh, well, la possibly the last question on this theme. I mean, it has been said, and uh, as you would have read probably many books about Fairfax, that your actions back in 87, as well motivated as they may well have been, um, did as possibly as much damage to Fairfax as the internet did a couple of decades later. Do you, when you hear that criticism, what do, how do you feel? Well, I think there's probably some uh, truth in that. I'd like to say no. But, you know, just looking at it dispassionately, um, uh, it, you know, what, what it did, it, it, it removed the company from um, the Fairfax family. Yes, it, you know, went um, in receivership into bankruptcy under my watch, which obviously, um, you know, I'm certainly significantly responsible for. Uh, after that, yes, it went into um, be a publicly traded company, the masthead have preserved and moved on, and then some speculators to how well management did from 1990 on, and there's been books written about that. But uh, would it have been more stable within the Fairfax family, um, perhaps? Uh, would the Fairfax family, me included, have done better than um, other uh, man subsequent management? I don't know. I think that's um, it's tough to say. Hmm. Uh, I guess we'll never know. I don't, anyway. I, don't, I don't know that you can necessarily say just because if we'd been in charge that we would have had better foresight than subsequent management. After all, the Graham family and others, hmm. you know, not too many did. So to say that our family would have better foresight than other media families. That's a tough case to make. So that's not to take away any of my culpability. I'm just not sure that if we'd been around that we would have had necessarily any better luck of seeing, you know, what, uh, and, and perceiving exactly how to combat the digital age. It's unknowable, but it's it's tough to say absolutely we would have been able to, to mm. see that. Mm. No, no, I, I think you're, I think you're dead right. You turn that experience at Fairfax and, and the trauma of that into what in essence is your business now, right? I mean, it, uh, it took some soul searching. I think you write about that as well on your website, but also that ref you reflected deeply on that and you've turned that into a business. What's your, uh, as it were, what's your selling point of your business? Well, it's funny. And I look at more of a uh, mission, if you will, to help leaders and really everybody get in touch with who they are, not who, who they're not. So in my case, you know, I start with, I mean, I think a lot of us go through refining experiences, crucible moments, as I call them. Mm -hmm. It's hard to be alive without uh, facing tragedy, whether it's your own fault or somebody else's fault. Um, it's just part of being human. When you go through those, you can either say, well, you know, uh, crawl under the covers and say, that's it, life's over. Or you can say, well, this wasn't fun, and maybe it was my fault, maybe it was others, maybe it was a combination, but what have I learned from that? 
Uh, often, most people aren't that reflective. I tend to be. <laughs> in fact, I tend to be very reflective as it happens. But most people are not. And so it's good to reflect and say, okay, you know, maybe part of this was I was in the wrong job. Maybe it doesn't fit my design. So how can I lead in light of how I'm wired? Mm-hmm. Uh, how can I figure out a vision that is in line with how I'm designed? And uh, and then, you know, what do we need to do to get there? So it's really a lessons learned, um, help people deal with crucible moments, help people get in touch with how they're wired and designed to what I call lead a life of significance, which to me means uh, something that serves other people, uh, makes the world a better place. Sounds a bit idealistic, but Mm -hmm. I think most people, if you ask them, very few people say, oh, it's all about career and money. I think most people, if you really, if you ask them, what do you want your legacy to be? Somehow, they want to make a difference. Yep, absolutely. And you just, uh, but do you ever get... um, journalists or editors or media executives through your program do you ever help them well i mean this is really in the beginning stages um so um you know we'll see kind of how it works but just um it's more really less a program that a philosophy a set of principles i'm very much wired that i don't like telling other people what to do it's just more having a set of principles that will help other people discern uh, what they feel called to do in life in light of how they're designed and maybe crucible moments. So it's it's really uh, offering people a way of, of thinking and then leaving it up to them um, uh, to figure out what they feel their mission or calling should be. Hmm. Okay. Well, the, just uh, maybe this is the moment to give a quick plug to the website. What's it called, please? It's called crucibleleadership.com. Okay. Uh, and it, uh, it gives you information on it. I uh, produce a blog a couple times a month. There'll be a book to follow and um, active on social media. So, uh, yeah, it's a um, it's a fun calling, and uh, it really more matches how I'm uh, how I'm designed. So, yeah. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about your. You've been in Annapolis for a long time. What's uh, thirty years or so? Mm. Is it? Um, yeah, since the early nineties. Right. So you you know you are seeing as uh, firsthand what we're seeing slightly secondhand mm-hmm. uh, how U.S. media is reporting uh, Donald Trump, um, especially you know the Washington Post and the New York Times mm-hmm. and a few other mm-hmm. uh, more established you know, like the New Yorker are are very much every day really calling him a liar and mm-hmm. sometimes much worse. How does that? What do you see is happening there? And how does that? How does that see? Are you happy with that sort of, if you like, evolution in journalism? A very good question. I would say Donald Trump is a is a very tough person to cover because he is very controversial. He tweets all sorts of, uh, let's just say, interesting things on a regular basis. Um, he's larger than life. He has some people that think he's absolutely wonderful. Some people think he's absolutely awful. And very few people in between. Mm. Uh, so, so what do you think about Trump? Well, you know, one of the things I try and do here is not comment on uh, public figures, be they left, right, in the middle, or Donald okay. Trump that, you know, doesn't quite easily slot into uh, certain categories. Um, so you are actually but, in the middle. Well, I don't know that I'd, <laughs> I, I, w- I would just try to stay on, on uh, off on the sidelines okay. of the uh, debate. I mean, I because I grew up in a newspaper family, I do follow politics and history and everything pretty closely. I read the Washington Post. 
pretty carefully every day. It's my local paper and, you know, sort of grew up as an avid reader. Mm-hmm. I would just say his, um, he, you know, his, his tough to cover, uh, it wouldn't, I really feel, um, what's the word sympathetic to journalists to try to cover somebody like that. Uh, I think whether it's, Trump or uh, you know Nancy Pelosi, Schumer, whoever it is, political figures. To me, uh, you should always try to cover them fairly. Um, I think of something that the former uh, person who did Meet the Press, you know, a long time um, show on NBC, uh, Tim yep. Russett, yep. considered one of the uh, top broadcast journalists probably of all time. He had this philosophy, which if he was interviewing uh, somebody who was a Democratic figure, he would take the Republican position. And if he was interviewing a Republican, he would take the Democratic position. Whichever one it was, he would just ask tough questions from the other side. So you never really knew where he was coming from politically. I know that's broadcast journalism, not print, but there's something about that that uh, I admire, or you go go back to the City Morning Herald's original masthead, you know, where Whigs call me Tory, Tory call me Whig. Ideally, um, you wouldn't be able to tell uh, which side an individual journalist would be on. Mm. Put it another way, you would have the left saying you're in the tank for the right, and the right saying you're in the tank for the left. Oh, but in the age of Trump, that, all, that all seems a bit um, old school now, doesn't it? Because if you do have the New York Times and the Washington Post calling mm-hmm. Trump a liar and pointing out, as the Washington Post has, that Trump lies on average, I think it's 5.9 times a day. Or yeah. uh, that's hardly um, the kind of Whig Tory kind of axis, is it? I mean, it's quite clear well, where they're it, coming it, from. It may not be. And that's without getting into the facts. Let's hypothetically assume that they're correct, mm-hmm. you know, just, just for hypothesis. To sure. me, uh, rather than, again, this is just an opinion, but rather than say, this, as a journalist, this is what I think. Say, well, here's what uh, one side is saying, that he lies, you know, every second. Here's what another side says. It says something else. And then from the editorial pages and the op-ed pages, then obviously you're free to say whatever you think. But in news columns, you know, uh, I guess maybe I'm old school, but to me, keep the news column news and keep the editorials editorial. Okay. All right. Realize yep. it's really hard to do, and that takes nothing away from the validity of the argument or non-validity of who he is and how much he lies or doesn't lie, if you follow. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, we've got to wrap up soon, but I just wanted to ask – whether you would ever be interested in being involved in media again. Um, in particular, uh, there's a lot of discussion here whether the um, the buying of, of a Fairfax 9 merger will create opportunities for parts of the old Fairfax to be bought out. In particular, the regional media gets mentioned quite a lot. Uh, that kind of worked for your for John B. Fairfax. He took Royal Press into Fairfax and in doing so brought himself and his son Nick back into the building, back into the boardroom. But, of course, that all ended in 2011. Um, is it anything you w- – would you ever consider something like that yourself? Riding again, as it were? Yeah, no, not really. Um, it's partly because I'm not wired to um, own a significant business with hundreds or thousands of employees. I'm not a, a manager, entrepreneur, uh Rupert Murdoch fellow or, or even John Fairfax, the original founder that obviously was an entrepreneur. Uh, I'm more of a reflective advisor. I would rather listen, discern, advise. Uh, that's more that's more how I'm wired. So um, uh, 
Okay. It's just, uh, you know, would it be fine if some people did? That'd be great. But it just doesn't fit with how I'm wired. So, mm. you know, I try to, as best I can, live what I preach, if you will. So, you know, it, would be, it wouldn't fit with my design. No, fair enough. Fair enough. That's, I think that's a level of self-knowledge that not too many of us actually have. Well, thank you. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> right, and thank you. And thank you so much, uh, Warwick Fairfax, for being on the Fourth Estate this week. Um, it's been great to, for, you to, for us to listen to you and to hear your reflections. Uh, thank you for being so frank. And we wish you all the best in the future. Thanks so much, Peter. Great to talk with you, and uh, yeah, appreciate it. And keep in touch with us. We'd love to um, interview again when the book comes out. Thanks very much. Will do. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you, Warwick Fairfax, and thank you all for listening. You're listening to The Fourth Estate, and uh, don't hesitate to tune in and and, and or download the podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week, uh, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Many thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name is Peter Frey. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.